Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery is John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 168. A welcome back for Mark Shaken. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Well, we really enjoyed it. You came back for those that are longtime listeners. In episode 132, you introduced us to 3J, a fabulous lawyer character in your books. Now, you were previously all about estate law and how people can get very personal, and that's your experience with 40 years in law, right? Yes. Now, I think it's fun that we talked it up in talking about how estate law could be interesting and so many times it feels like law and and crime it's all about you know violence and death but you bring up an excellent point there is plenty of drama wrapped in other things for instance we all saw the movie knives out the original not not glass onion yet i haven't gotten there but it was totally a social commentary and an inheritance drama wrapped in a whodunit and that's, I think, opened the door to writers like you, don't you think, that have that legal experience and all those details and all of the different personalities that you see. Tell us about it. Well, my goal when I started off on the, the fiction um, uh, adventure was to, to write legal thrillers because you write what you know. Um, but I wanted them to be something more than a legal thriller, so reflect some of the world that we all live in. In the new book, Unfair Discrimination, the overriding storyline is white nationalism, terrorist organization, domestic terrorist organizations. And so uh, in embedded in the legal thriller is my say on things like white nationalism and, and domestic terrorism. And I'm, I'm good with that. I, there have been some folks who have read it. Uh, it just came out, but some that have read it already and said, well, there's a lot of social commentary buried in the legal thriller, and perhaps there's a legal thriller buried in the social commentary. I, I, it could be either. I am not sure for all those of us glued to the news and from many different perspectives online, you can really separate the two so much anymore. No, I mean, so true. Yeah. There's a lot of, of the DOJ is doing this and they're moving this. And there's there's a lot of people that don't know the difference between what is a grand jury and what do they do and how does that affect their day-to-day -day life? And I believe that finally we're starting to see, wow, did you know it actually can affect your day-to-day -day life in a brand new way? Yeah, for sure. For sure. There is a system that's been around, you know, with us here in America for hundreds of years and Great Britain, where we got it from, you know, for hundreds more than hundreds of years. So it there is the system and people rail against the system uh, regularly, but there are parts of it that actually, you know, work every day. Grand you know, being one of them. Yeah. Something that always disappointed me is I had a friend who passed the bar down in Louisiana and I was treated years ago to a long explanation on how. Louisiana is based on Napoleonic code, which is old Roman law, as opposed to the ancient Anglo-Saxon where guild, everything has a price. Have, have you ever wanted to use that? Or do you foresee saying somebody that knows that system versus the other system, how that makes a difference? So my interaction with Louisiana law is like most 
uh, folks from the other 49 states is somewhat limited. When I was in Texas and practicing Texas attorney, you know, Louisiana, of course, is the, the next door neighbor. And there was some talk that maybe some of us would get licensed in Louisiana, and I did not raise my hand. It, it is a very different basic system from the Anglo-Saxon, which the other 49 states use. It, you don't it, have a right to face your accuser, somebody that that might be. I, I have to admit, yeah. I I have uh, once I didn't raise my hand, I didn't spend too much time trying to figure out what the differences are. Commercial law not very different. Louisiana has adopted the same basic commercial law and certainly has the bankruptcy code because that's a federal law as the other forty nine states. So for what I did for my you know decades in the law, it, it wasn't very different. But state property law, marital law, estate planning law, those are quite different. And um, I imagine criminal law as well. I always wondered what would happen if somebody owned property in Louisiana and Texas and California, for instance, of what what would they do in that sort of case? Because that strikes me as its own kind of whodunit of like, well, Jeannie may have died suspiciously, but she owned property in all these states. So how would we unravel that? Yeah, I remember. So there are some states that are sort of Spanish uh, property law based. Uh, Texas, um, California, Florida being the big ones. Um, and I re I remember telling my wife when we bought our first starter home down in Houston, uh, whatever we do, we can't die here because I don't know how that works <laughs> with the house <laughs> once once we die. So we have to stay alive long enough to, to live here and then move someplace. <laughs> oh my God. There's an Uncle Bonsai song called Send My Body Home. I'll send you a link. You have to listen to it. If I die here, don't let me lie here. Send my body home. <laughs> Sure thing. Yeah. Although for, for you, it's obviously send my body to a different court of jurisdiction. Right, right. So moving a little bit away from that, you're writing a legal procedural, which is fun. You're including modern things. How much, having read some of this book, but not enough, this is both topical and interesting. How many more 3J books are lurking behind this one? Are, do you have a long plan of many cases? Because you have enough of a depth of experience to write a lot of books, I imagine. There's at least one more. I, I wrote two of books of, of her in 2022. And um, while that was exciting, it almost killed me. So there's one more in 23 uh, that I still need to do some more research in order to get started on. And that'll be four in the series. Pause one second there and say, holy cow, you wrote two books in 22. You are my new God. Uh, it, well, I, I don't recommend that, but I did. To some extent, that reflects a few things, the 22 experience. One, I'm getting more used to writing fiction, which, you know, as a lawyer for decades, wasn't something that I, I wrote a lot, but not that. Um, and there's a whole learning curve. And the only way to learn it is to get started doing it. So I got better at it. And better seemed to mean faster. But this, the, the current book, unfair discrimination, the story really just sort of came out. Okay, I, I got to ask if the story came out of the news. I mean, for instance, reading a review, it said it, the prevalence of hatred, racism, white nationalism, incidents of violence against minorities, uh, which is, is it a chicken or an egg? Was this literally you watched what happened at the beginning of 2022 and it just burst into your head? Or were you already writing and then you know, January 2022 happened, and then it ch changed your course. There were a few things that sort of uh, fed into the stew that ended up being unfair discrimination. Certainly January 6th last year, um, 
but before January 6th, I had already decided that this next book was going to have something like this in it. Um, and then there's my, my sort of love of American history and this in particular, the civil war, uh, and the place that Kansas and Missouri played in the lead up to the civil war and then the civil war itself, which, you know, Kansans and Missourians know, and maybe the rest of the country doesn't know quite as much how, um, how much of the civil war, um, came about as a result of whether Kansas was going to be a free state or a slave state. Missouri was a slave state by that point in time. And so the, the storyline, um, for the, the, the main bad guy in, in unfair discrimination ended up having a very, uh, strong tie to his, some correct, true history. The character is obviously fictional, but his heritage is based on a real person that you know, marauded on the border of Kansas and Missouri for years before the Civil War and then all the way through to the end of the Civil War. Help me out. Was that a, if you were one of the marauders, were you a Jayhawker or was that one of the No, so, Jay, so the Jayhawkers, which were the Lawrence, Kansas folks, were the Free Staters. Okay. Um, and that's the city's nickname, actually. And um, you can go there and drink free state beer going all the way back to, you know, John Brown, who, who um, was an abolitionist was a Kansan uh, or at least parked himself in Kansas for, for much of the civil war before he was uh, hung in, in Virginia, caught and brought to Virginia and hung. So the marauder back in the day is a guy named William Clark Quantrill uh, who headed up something called Quantrill's Raiders. All, Quantrill's Raiders. Yeah. All true. All really happened. And, you know, a lot of folks thought that Quantrill was this principled, you know, Southerner who uh, believed the cause that slavery was necessary and, and and fine. I think some of the, at least in my world, some of the more thoughtful uh, historians would say that Quantrill was nothing but um, a, a criminal <laughs> who used the Civil War as cover to do the, you know, to rob and steal and pillage. He, but he did, he did uh, park himself in Missouri and then at night raid on the Kansas side and you know, kill free staters and kill black people or steal black people and brought them back to the slave state to enslave them. So all of that was raging uh, several years before the Civil War broke out. So you know, without getting too much deeper into the the history lesson, the the main bad guy is a descendant of William Clark Quantrill who admires him, and without giving up too much more of the plot, you know. There's a real tie between the, my fictional character and what what was actually happening in the 1850s and 60s. There was recently an article of somebody who said, I, I came from a very white Appalachian town and you guys don't exist that they still want it back the way it was. And I thought that was a very valuable point of saying there, there's people that are still there. There's people still saying we want women, blacks, Jews, anything not white guys to be second-class citizens. So we have avoided, we, we haven't chatted much about this, but I don't see how we can avoid embracing everything that is going on in America and fiction moving forward. So I was really excited that this book really did reflect that so much. If you start researching white nationalism, you'll find yourself on the website for the Southern um, Poverty Law Conference or or the the know them well yes any defamation league and you'll find white papers written about organizations that are similar to the one that I fictionalized um which 
in the book is called the 3630s, which represents the the latitude below which um, the 1820 latitude below which uh, America had decided you can have slaves and above which north of which you, you couldn't. Um, right. Yeah. And that's where Oklahoma got its panhandle for those not paying attention at home. <laughs> yeah. Which was the big mistake, I guess, that Congress made because they thought Kansas was south of that. And therefore, of course, it would vote to be a, a slave state. And it didn't. Right. <laughs> Wrong. Of course, there's also a joke that Colorado paid Oklahoma to take that part so they wouldn't have to share a border with Texas. Mm. Just just a theory. I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> so you go on in the book and you have 3J and uh, Pascal, we met in the first book, correct? Correct. And they they go out and I love that you use them starting with, you've told us before that you're a plotter. But you have very distinct characters and you make everybody very real. So are you one of those authors that actually starts with, do you write up details about your character or do you know, have them in your head and then write them out on the paper as you go? How do you do now, that? Um, I write everything down. I think after decades of being a lawyer, it's too scary not to plan everything out. <laughs> it, it, it it may not have been in my DNA in college, but it certainly was thereafter implanted in my DNA. Um, you know, I have, a, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, I have a spreadsheet where the characters that I've done already um, live. And as they're developed, the spreadsheet grows to include the things that they have um, revealed in the different books. And then there's a column for the things that they uh, hopefully will reveal in the coming books. I think that's actually awesome. I mean, you've saved the time for future fans to make a wiki. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing better would be making a wiki now, but let them work a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but I like 3J. Um, I'd love to have lunch with her. Um, and so hopefully some of my readers would, would feel the same way. I think that's the most important to to be a little bit, I don't want to say make it sound wrong, but you got to fall in love with your own characters, right? You have to say, yeah, I like them and I want to tell their story. However, however flawed or imperfect, there's got to be something about them that you really admire, right? Mm -hmm. So true. And so this is, again, is this all just in bankruptcy again, or do we learn new parts of the law as part of this discussion on, let's see, the bad guy is on the domestic terrorist list and in a white net organization what do we learn legally outside of bankruptcy in this? Well, the book gets its, all the books get their name from some bankruptcy thing, um, uh, which hopefully isn't too, you know, bankruptcy wonky for the rest of the world. But each Did, of the what? books will be, na is named and the new one will be named something that exists in the bankruptcy code uh, in one shape or another. And unfair discrimination is a phrase that um, is lives in the bankruptcy uh, code. <laughs> so, I was actually about to say, tell me what unfair discrimination means to a lawyer. Um, so to a bankruptcy lawyer. To a bankruptcy, to a bankruptcy lawyer. lawyer. <laughs> in twenty words or less, um, which I no, hope no. I, you I don't hope have I'm to able... limit yourself that way. This is not an elevator. So it's an important part of the book because the judge has to really struggle with applying this particular law in bankruptcy to the bad guy. I mean, so the storyline is that a real estate, a rural real estate wheeler and dealer uh, files bankruptcy, doesn't hire 3J, but the unsecured creditors committee, a committee of unsecured creditors hires her. And that committee is chaired by this white nationalist who is uh, 
excoriated at the beginning of the book by others of his organization for hiring a black woman. And he says it's just business. He doesn't have to like her to get her to uh, do her thing. Um, unfair discrimination in the bankruptcy code is one of the standards that the judge has to apply in order to decide whether the debtor's payment plan is fair or fair enough, or as the bankruptcy code would say, not unfair, <laughs> um, using its famous double negative, not unfair to the creditors. Normally, unsecured creditors are treated the same. So if you want to break one out or a group of uh, creditors out and treat them less well, you know, treat them differently, then the judge has to decide whether that um, different treatment is unfair discrimination. It's clearly discriminating against them, but is it unfair? And the whole unfair discrimination thing, given that I was writing a book about white nationalism, I thought was was um, great because you know you can't talk about white nationalism without talking about discrimination, and it leads to the the question that I, you know, I got when I taught bankruptcy at KU for uh, fourteen years from the students every single year this is the only place I've ever heard where you can discriminate against somebody as long as it's not unfair. Isn't all discrimination unfair. <laughs> and, and it's, it's a, it's a lovable, as you said, geeky pun that the person who is being examined for unfair uh, discrimination before all the action happens uh is himself probably one of the more discriminatory people in the book. Yeah, there's I, a lot. I, of, I actually I, found that delicious. A little, a lot of ironies as that comes up, but you know, without giving away too much, the judge really struggles with this because setting aside how he might feel as as an American and on a social basis about this white nationalist, he still has to the judge still has to apply the law. And figure out what are the standards for unfair discrimination, because it is not easy intentionally by Congress, not easy to break out creditors and treat them differently. It's mm -hmm. true. There's this seems to have, like, as I said, I, I love that so much has come up in the news since then that I can say, hey, they've started talking about uh, who was it? Infowars boy, Alex Jones, that had a mm -hmm a case and said, well, he's bankrupt. He can't possibly pay all the people in this court decision, et cetera. And I admit when I was when I was looking at your book, I thought very much, wow, this could really ease you, you could almost write if 3J represented Alex Jones in terms of, well, I don't possibly have that billion dollars because one, I've hit it in other places. And two, you're trying to discriminate against me. Right. 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 I would hope she wouldn't take that particular case, mostly because <laughs> it's not going to be anywhere in her jurisdiction. But well, I, I do when, have. When Pascal learned she took this case, he thought she was out of her mind. <laughs> so that's that's an important thing to remember. It's it's like much like people forget that the police. You can call the police and say, "I have somebody in my house, and he's scaring me." And the police are not legally obliged to show up. So in the same way that a lawyer is not legally obliged to take your case just because you want them, there's a whole lot of not legally required to do things that people take for granted because of TV and movies. Sure, exactly. Looking down the road here, you could have a, one of the um, Glass Onion movies written from one of your stories. This one, yeah. I think, has enough punch to make it in.
Well, as my grandmother would have said, from your mouth to God's ears, but right? I, don't, I don't have anyone in Hollywood calling me just yet. <laughs> well, when they do, say yes, because uh, it would be really fun. Uh, would, of course, be, you, yeah. you then lose control of the narrative in a major way, but that's another thing. Speaking of like narrative and design, do I notice a different change in the book cover on this one? Did you, uh, who, who's your current book designer on this? Cause, or is it just a different area? No, I wanted to have something totally different rather than just have the series be uh, similar uh, for each cover, which was my original thought. So I, I went with a new book designer, um, Demanza, uh, huh. and I just thought he did a, a really great job. He listened to me tell him what the story was about and some of the subplots. And um, I thought he did a great job. The cover has what is supposed to be, and to me, it looks that way, cryptography sort of floating around the silhouetted uh, lawyer on the front cover because right. there is an element of cryptography in the book because there was an element of cryptography in the Civil War. There has been cryptography back to the Roman era and Henry V. If anybody really wants to know geeky shit about cryptography, I am your girl. <laughs> And I just didn't think Dan Brown should have the the the, the total you know corner. He on should that, so. not. I mean, he was he, Johnny come lately here. Cryptography is old from the when when you think about it. There was a fellow named Nagaret who originally, when Philip Lebel arrested all of the Templars, they did it everywhere in the country all at once. Nagaret went around saying, "We need to create some nationalism, a kingdom of France that never ever existed." And how he did it has interesting and startling parallels to what people still do today to create nationalism. But I need everybody to agree with me and I need to co coordinate all at once. And they didn't have Twitter and they didn't have social media. So how do we send messages encrypted? It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, I don't and know. you said lawyers were geeking out about this. <laughs> well, no. lawyers should geek about it. It's a great, great subject. I also, just for fun, because I know that you are an indie publisher, and I think that's extremely cool. Tell me about who you used for this book for editing services as well. I know a lot of writers that are also doing editors right now. So who did you use and do you love them? I do love them to answer the second question first. Her name is Melanie Mohall. She lives um, in suburban Denver. She, her company is Dragonheart. I had decided after the first two books that I wanted to separate out different parts of the editing process. So the, the proofreading Melanie did not do and nor did she want to do. And so I had a different person proofread it. And I think the book is cleaner. I think that the editing that she did was spectacular, really, really top notch. That brings an interesting, I, people forget, they think, well, I'll just throw it over the hill to editing. There really is a difference between line edits of perfection and story edits and layout edits and plot edits, etc. So you've worked with both now, which which do you feel really gives you that final, I love what happened with this? Um, the, the first part, the, yeah. the, the overriding editing and making sure the story is consistent, which she does, you know, in a unified fashion, which I kind of liked. It was funny because it was the first time we worked together. And there's a lot of, there were, as much as I try to not overwhelm people with the law in it, there is a certain wonkiness to, to the law part, <laughs> which I'm not sure I can help. She 
would get to one of those parts and get on Google and look it up and then write me and, and say, well, but it says this. And I'd have to write her back and says, well, but it doesn't do that. It's, it does this. It does. It may say that, but this is what, this is how it works. And so we had this wonderful back and forth as she was you know, reading my book for the, me for the first time, the proofreading is uh, more mechanical. I just think I've concluded that I can't proofread it because my eye corrects everything. I don't think the main editor can proofread it well either because the same thing happens by the time she's read the book several times and then edited it. She's kind of like me. And so you need somebody that hasn't read it before to, to, to clean up typos, to clean up some spelling mistakes that gosh, I mean, I've read the book, you know, 12, 15 times by the time it gets to the proofreader, not including writing it, you know, it has mistakes in it that I haven't seen. It's true. And that's, I think, incredibly self-aware of you to notice that, you know, two eyes good, four eyes better, eight eyes spider, however you want to think of it. It's absolutely true that you can miss that I typed the, the, and your spell checker won't catch it. And sometimes your Grammarly will catch it. But sooner or later, you need to stop and say, is this the right word in the right spot? And you're absolutely right to bring other people in on that. So well done. Yeah, I liked it. I'm, I'm, the team is together now, and the next book will um, be done the same way. Demonza will do the cover. Uh, Melanie will do the editing, and John Wilcoxon is his name. He'll do the the proofing. Fantastic. So, what have you? This is now you. You've published a couple now. What lessons have you learned that you would love to pass on to somebody new just getting started in all of this? Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Besides you know, the spreadsheet, which is genius. Uh, yeah, and the the narrator who reads my um, my Audible books uh, likes the spreadsheet because I added a column that said this person should sound like um, Michael Douglas or this person should sound like, and I and I kind of over I, I may I may do too much of that for him, but he says he likes it. Um, so what have I learned? You know, the first thing I learned was how spoiled I was when I wrote two books when I was practicing and had a real publishing company because. While there were things that they could do that would drive me crazy, in the end, all I had to do was write. They edited, they marketed, they formatted, they figured out what they wanted the cover to be. They never asked me what did I think, and you know they sent me a check every quarter. So then, uh, there's many fewer publishing companies, of course. Now, I'm a lot older, and so the notion that I was going to try to find a publishing company or an agent who would find a publishing company, I figured I'd be like 80 years old before I knew whether my first (laughs) book would be published. And I didn't want that. So the first thing I learned was how spoiled I was when the publishing company did everything for me. Because, you know, you you all know this, you're in charge of the cover, you're in charge of the formatting, you're in charge of what I just described, selecting your team and you're editing. And then, you know, and the writing becomes no longer the hardest thing that you did in many respects. Um, Definitely. I mean, just the other night, I was spending just trying to copy something from Microsoft Word into a Google Doc. I think I spent two hours just trying to get all my paragraphs to align properly and cried and complained on social media (laughs) about it and threw my cup against the wall. And I entirely empathize with you on the whole, having to do it all yourself to indie publishers out there. Wow, you guys are doing a lot of work and we all hats off to you right now. And, and But most of the education has been in marketing. You know, what do I want to do? What am I comfortable doing? What am I good at? What am I not good at? What What seems to work? What doesn't? For the first book, I knew none of this. So I tried a little bit of everything. 
and I wasn't really as focused on trying to get to people who are readers as opposed to just trying to get to people. Um, and there's, I've learned there's a big distinction in that. And if you can, for me anyway, if I can hone in on things that would seem to reach readers, it's a, it's more rewarding and B it's probably more productive. The, the first book came out the day or so after governor polis here in Colorado issued the lockdown order in April, 2020 for the pandemic. And so I had lined up some bookstores I was going to you know, go to and have signings and, you know, meet and greet the public and all of that kind of thing. And that ended because the bookstores went completely online. They weren't allowed to have customers come into the store at that point. Yeah. Marketing and, during COVID is its own, its own story really, isn't it? It is, but I had, you know, a, a, a parallel experience. I think, excuse me, I think to what many people have now learned that you, you, you get on Zoom like we are, and um, you can reach a broader audience. So that's what sort of got me into the podcast uh, world and giving podcast interviews. A, I reach people outside the metropolitan area, which is great. Um, B, you know, hopefully I'm reaching people who are um, readers by, by either habit or that's their hobby. Um, by selecting podcasts that have something to do with, you know, reading and books and things like that. And, um, and I enjoy it, which is, <laughs> I didn't think I would, um, you know, I I've chuckled to my wife that, you know, for almost 40 years, I went to court every day and I was very comfortable speaking, but not about me. I, I was right. never the problem. <laughs> it was either my client, the other guy's client, or the judge wasn't apparently listening to what I was hoping he would listen to. Um, now all of a sudden I have to talk about me and stuff I've done. And for the first couple of few that I did, I was terrible, but I got a little better. I'm not perfect, but I I've gotten better and I do enjoy talking about the process and the books and then hearing what the people interviewing me, you know, are doing. So, um, I find podcasts to be really effective. Well, hopefully we do too. <laughs> to that I'm not in your chain. I, I really do think that that they they are a good place for an author to get um, him or herself out there and talk about you know what they're doing. The book. There's a lot of people that are starting to use podcasts in new ways. Like, you know, I don't necessarily like ads, but I could like podcasts as I drive from one place to another, or work out the gym, or. You know, as people are starting to move back to their work, ride on mass transit to get one place to another. And podcasts really fit that in a non-commercial sort of way where you can watch YouTube, but at the same time, you'll be flooded with ads for people who just want to hear things or learn things or people that are looking for new books. I think it's an opportunity. I think you're right. And one of the things I love about the where that you're writing is you're writing in a very interesting niche you are writing in something that many people wish they knew more about the law, but don't. We, you know, we, we think we know the law from watching TV and we think we know the law from, from reading, you know, the, the big to do courses where somebody died, but there's so much tension and there's so much story and there's so much.
many humans involved in your stories. And as I just wanted to round out and saying, I really like the way that you make the humans, that every single human in your book is well-rounded. And if I feel like I could ask you, hey, what was Pascal thinking about this? And Judge Robertson, do you think, how do you think he feels about all this on the inside? And you bring that out. And I think that's really neat. Well, thanks. I had this huge smile on my face. <laughs> Thank oh, <yay. laughs> well, we will put links to the interesting things we discussed during this website. We, well, sorry, we will put links on the fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Mark, thanks for coming out and unfair discrimination. We should buy it, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Or read it on Audible Unlimited. But remember, it is a magnificent book. Yeah, thank use you. your adjectives. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm, um, I'm really pleased with how it's been received so far. And you know, guys, thanks very much for having me back on. I appreciate it. It's been our delight. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Arm Street, Slava Ukraina, and hey, anywhere you drink coffee, there we will be also. Thanks for listening. <laughs>